This episode of The Flight Diary is brought to you by Wander Disc Golf, a brand that's bred from passion for the sport and all of the beautiful places it can take us. Wander has a wide variety of thoughtful apparel rooted in disc golf and an advocacy for mental health. Find them at at WanderDiscGolf on Instagram and shop at WanderDiscGolf.com. This episode is also brought to you by Double Helix Disc Sports. Double Helix exists to provide the best in equipment and apparel for players at every skill level. They are also the manufacturer and exclusive seller of their own grip solution, Ringtail Dry Sacks. Brothers Mark and Matt aim to provide an extremely high level of quality and customer service in everything they do for the disc golf community. So browse their selection at doublehelixdisksports.com and use the code FLIGHTSHIP at checkout to get free shipping on your first order. For more news, giveaways, and sweet disc golf content, follow them on Instagram at doublehelixdisksports. You're listening to The Flight Diary. An intimate collection of stories, theories, and thoughts from the world of professional disc golf. I'm your host, Brian Earhart. Today's episode is special. I believe that when it comes to understanding where disc golf is today, context, and understanding truly how far disc golf has come is extremely vital. To contribute to that, I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with one of the most decorated flying disc athletes of all time, five-time disc golf world champion, two-time freestyle world champion, and four-time world overall flying disc champion, Juliana Korber. Her legendary disc golf career was short-lived compared to the greats of modern times, but her story vividly illustrates an important trail that she blazed for the rest of the world. I can't wait for you to hear this. Enjoy. As a child, I was I was scared of my own shadow as a child. Oh boy. I was so timid. I had I had an older brother and I was very active with him, following him around, running around, playing. Broke my left arm four times in a year and a half doing so. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but in groups where I wasn't comfortable, where I didn't know people, adults would think that they left me somewhere that like we would be driving places and and the person driving would oh where's Julie oh oh there she is okay good we still have her because I wouldn't I would never talk I would never move I was just taking in the world but I didn't want the world to see me I see so were you fascinated by the world as a kid or were you when you say you're afraid of your own shadow were you more of an anxious kid No I, I guess I guess that's probably overstatement not, I, Yeah so I I was extremely comfortable with myself, Mm -hmm. by myself, Mm -hmm. but I didn't want other people to see me doing whatever it was I was doing. Interesting. What was the fear? I don't know. I, I always felt like I had to be what they expected me to be. Interesting. You know, as a kid growing up in the country on 15 acres, I spent most of my time in trees or following my brother or, you know, whatever. We had all kinds of animals, horses, ducks, chickens, goat, you know. How many horses did you have? Wait wait a second. We we had two horses, two Tennessee walking horses. Oh my gosh. You know, just play for hours and hours and hours doing whatever you can think of outside. Uh But it was by myself or with my brother Mm -hmm. or even with my parents, you know. Yeah. When other people came into the picture, even if even if I, I knew them, if they were my friends or, or whatever, 
it still felt like I had, I don't know, like, I mean, the standard introverted thing, you know, you have mm -hmm. to put a mask on for the world because mm -hmm. you have to show the world what you think the world wants. I see. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel that. Um, when I was in fifth or sixth grade, I think it was, my mother started a print shop. And after school, I would sometimes go to her shop and I would build a fort out of the paper boxes and I would just sit inside the fort for hours. And, you know, I'd, I'd watch the interactions of the people coming in and doing their orders and, and everything. But nobody had a clue I was there. And, <laughs> and, and that was heaven for me, you yeah. know? Either I wanted to be physically doing something or I wanted to be involved but not seen. So then when you went through, you know, middle school, junior high, you say a print shop was your was your haven, which is, I mean, kids find solace in, in a lot of weird things. And I wouldn't call this weird. I actually call it fitting, obviously. But you had mentioned in, in previous interviews that I've read about you that sports were a part of your life. And you said, you know, obviously early on you were playing with your brother and you were running around. You had horses, of course, you know, because everyone has horses growing up. Um, when did sports become a part of your life? And like, what did that mean to you early on? Uh, sports were were a big outlet for me throughout my childhood. Well, my mother tells me that I was so clumsy when I was young <laughs> that she was worried that I wouldn't be able to function in the world if she didn't try to do something. I mean, maybe a little hyperbole here, but yeah. but still. So at age three, she got me into dancing classes because she thought, you know, maybe this will give her a little bit of grace. <laughs> and I, I don't know if it helped or not, but so that was the first physical organized uh -huh. activity that I did. So that started at three, but then by five, I was swimming competitively. Okay. And then, you know, t-ball, whenever that happens, and then every sport that is available, which, you know, there's not all that many sports in small town Iowa, Yeah. but I did every one of them. And by the time I was 12, I was already almost six feet tall. 12? Yeah. Oh my gosh. By, by seventh grade, I, I was full grown. Whoa! So I was huge. <laughs> How was that? How, let's let's take a take a second. What was it like to be almost six feet tall in seventh grade playing I sports? I was horrified by it because <laughs> remember I'm the one that wants to hide. Yeah. So and and at the time I probably weighed 100 pounds at six feet tall. You know I I was I was just uh -huh. grossly underweight and terribly skinny and and awkward as mm -hmm. can be and. I always thought of myself as a child mm -hmm. as being huge. You know, I didn't yeah. I didn't understand that I was I would blow over in a wind. But, you know, I, I'm I'm this massive person. Yeah. But I think because of the dancing, I did have some I, I had good muscle tone. It's probably great for a young kid to get into that kind of stuff. Yeah. I well, I mean it was it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> that's all I thought about at the time. Well, mm -hmm. I, I guess that's not true. I've always been I've always wanted to do the best that I could at whatever it was I was doing. Mm -hmm. And I loved sports. Yeah. And, and my brother was, was very intellectual. He was extremely intelligent. And so, uh, it, not that I didn't try to excel mm -hmm. in the scholastic part of things, but I think that maybe made it a little bit more clear that I could excel over here. Yes, that makes complete sense. And when you got into swimming, which again is another one of those things that's so good for kids, but you got to do it competitively. Yes. So competitive swimming right away, like training has to happen to be a competitive swimmer. You can't just jump in the pool and be great at swimming. You have to train for it. So 
what was the part of swimming that you enjoyed the most? I guess digging into like like kid Juliana, was it the practicing for yes, swimming? Yes, I love. Yes, I actually liked practices better than the tournaments. Well, for one, there's the tournaments. You you what you have four or five events that you swim in if you're lucky, and and you just sit around and and watch the rest of the time. You know, I, I so the practices were more fun for me, but. I love the isolation of swimming. When you're in a lane and you're swimming and your head is uh, under the water much of the time, the sensory deprivation, it was mm-hmm. just magic. I just loved it. Wow. I weirdly understand that. It's like the flow state that everybody talks about in sports or in meditation or finding something that you can lose yourself in. So that sounds like kind of a nice thing for a kid to instantly be drawn to in sports because I think that's how you become successful in sports is finding that feeling. When you got older, what did you start to gravitate towards sports-wise, life-wise, like maybe getting you know getting closer to high school? Were you getting more and more competitive in swimming or what did you start to gravitate towards? So uh, late in my elementary school days, my parents divorced. A few years later, my mother remarried, and we moved to an even smaller town. So I was in uh, Charles City, Iowa, which was a town at the time of about 10,000. And we moved to Rockford, Iowa, which is a town of about 900. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So in Rockford, well, first of all, our high school was comprised of three different communities uh-huh. because that's the only way that you can have enough students. To have a high school, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you had to borrow kids, yeah. yeah. So, so it was Red Rockford, Marble Rock, all those three communities combined, and our graduating class was give or take 60 students. So everybody pretty much has to do everything in order for there to be a team or you know the, the play or the swing choir. You know, you, you just did everything. Uh-huh. So there was no choosing, you know, you don't, you didn't specialize. Interesting. Which I think was awesome because, first of all, what if you choose wrong? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you, you get to play everything. And, and none of the teams are, are great. I mean, yeah. you know, anyway, the smaller school didn't have a pool. And so the two communities are only 14 miles apart. And I was contemplating whether to still swim in Charles City while going to high school in Rockford, and uh, I didn't end up doing it. But okay. uh, so then I did start to play volleyball in Rockford because that was at the same time as mm-hmm. the swimming. But I did I did everything. I loved softball the most. Okay. The larger school, Charles City, still still small, but it was very very focused on athletics. So it had state championship teams in football, in wrestling, in softball. I mean, they were outstanding and they demanded the best from all of the students and I saw that you know growing up I mean you you put absolutely everything you can into whatever it is yeah for some reason I had never really played basketball and so that one didn't really entice me that much interesting for a tall I know, young kid I know, right? yeah and so it was in eighth grade and I'm still in Charles City and I hadn't signed up for for the team and all of a sudden, in my um, English class, there's a knock on the door, and some guy sticks his head in. I had no idea it was. It was the varsity basketball coach <laughs> from the school across town uh-huh. who had come over during his lunch to to recruit you to find where <laughs> I was to yes to knock on the door to take me out in the hallway during my my <laughs> oh my, my class. And he said, "Why aren't you signed up?" 
He's like begging you to join the team? No, he wasn't begging. He was, I felt like I was being reprimanded, but I was so timid that yeah. my parents to, to discipline me, mm -hmm. all they needed to say was Julie, you know, and I would, I would go to my room for four hours cause I was, I was so mm -hmm. devastated from, wow. okay. from, you know, such harsh punishment. Yeah. Terrible you know? corporal. Pun yeah. yeah. And uh, by the way, I went by Ju Juliana is my given name, but I went by Julie until grad school. Wow. Okay. So, so when I talk about myself um, uh, from that time, uh -huh. I say Julie. Timeline number one, Julie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I actually really like that attitude that your high school had. That's such a, such a unique thing for for the kids to not specialize and for it to be like an accepted thing to just like dip your feet in everything, which is really cool. So, so I I, I stopped in the middle of my story there. So the Charles City sports ethos was we must win. You know, there's there's mm -hmm. only one position, and that is on top of the heap. <laughs> and so, I did actually go out for basketball because I do everything that adults tell me to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. And and I, I liked it. Mm -hmm. I was again, I was a giant, so mm -hmm. it was probably fun. Yeah. Oh, and and you may know this because you grew up in the Midwest, but you're quite a bit younger, so maybe not. Uh, we played six on six. Did you really? Yeah. I had no idea. Okay, we play six on six. Three girls. What? Three girls on each side of the court. You can't go past half court. <laughs> so you have like like offensive players? Yes. In, really? Yes. Yes, I was a guard. Because <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. You, well, women. Whoa. You know, women are are dainty, so you can't. Oh yeah, you can't, of course. You can't yeah. run full court, mm -hmm. so you can only dribble twice. They had different rules for the women's basketball as the men men's basketball. Completely different. Completely different. Yeah. You How can... far we've come. <laughs> My God. Iowa and Indiana were the last two states to get rid of six really? on six and then go to five on five. So I played six on six. I was a guard because mm -hmm. I was huge. So yes, I, I had very many fouls, very many steals, <laughs> very many block shots. Yeah, I bet. Um, and I loved it. Oh, I just loved it. Really? So much fun. Our freshman year in Charles City, we were undefeated as the the women's ninth grade team we mm -hmm. were very good mm -hmm. and we were <laughs> in a constructive way kind of talked down to after every game because mm -hmm. you know this is what you did wrong you did this wrong you did this wrong you did this wrong you didn't do you, you didn't think about this that could have gone you know and so it wasn't outcome based it was performance you know mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you win you have to play you have to win the right way yeah you 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 know you can still improve even if you blow out the game. Mm -hmm. And so then I moved, I moved to this much smaller community and, you know, they barely know the rules. They're yeah. Gonna, they're going to, they're going to kill me if they hear this, but so you know, the, the difference in the theory behind how you attack sports mm -hmm. was night and day. And so I come over to this, this other school and I'm still playing like I'm playing serious for, basketball. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I guess <laughs> It served me well in this small school. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, you know, I ended up with 13 varsity letters in... Oh, my gosh. In my time in high school, yeah. But did you enjoy the sports much oh, yeah. more at the smaller uh, school where uh, it was less serious? I don't know if I did. Well, I think I think I probably did because, because I worked as hard as I was taught to mm -hmm. from the one school. Then I went somewhere else where I was now I working harder than everybody else. So I sort of rose to the top. Wow. So that really stuck with you. But then post high school, you did go to college. I, I, I did read that you played sports in college. 
But you played multiple sports in college? Well, I went to a small school for okay. my freshman year. I went to Grinnell College. Okay. And I played softball and volleyball. And, you know, Grinnell, they don't care one bit about sports. Okay. And, and so, you know, you want to play, you can play. And now that I look back on it, I wish I would have swum as well. I wish I would have gone for the swim team as Three well. Three-sport athlete yeah. in college. Okay. <laughs> but after my freshman year, though I consider this one of my biggest mistakes in life, I transferred to be with a boyfriend. Mm. And I went to a school which I consider to be less scholastic. As Grinnell. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, Grinnell's an excellent school. Yeah. And so I went to the University of Northern Iowa to finish out my undergrad. Uh, and I... I just never even dreamt that I would have been good enough to play something there. And I was also getting a triple major in the four years. So I was taking, you know, 21 credits a semester. What were you majoring in? Math, computer science, and earth science. But I wasn't a triple major going into it, but that that okay. sort of happened along the way. I, I thought at the time, if I was independently wealthy, I would just take classes all the time. You know, mm-hmm. I just thought it was it was so fun. And I, I would go through the, um, like as a little kid, you go through the Sears ro- 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 Robux? The, the Sears, Sears Robux, yeah. The Sears Robux. And you, you know, you circle everything that you want. And mm-hmm. I would do that as a college age student. I would do that with the class, the book of um, all the classes. Would you really? Yeah. That's I want to awesome. take everything in the science. I want to take everything in the math. And I had no idea about the, the computer science. I just um, took that as uh, something that works for the math degree and mm-hmm. I fell in love with it and and that's how I got into the computer science. Wow. And then did you have a plan? Did you know exactly what you were going to do with oh, computer gosh, science? No. Okay, no, good. No, because no, no, no. I, I thought you were going to be one of those people that no. just knows exactly what you're going to do in college and undergrad. Okay, so you were triple majoring, but you really kind of had an idea, but kind of didn't have an idea. I thought I was going to become an actuary. Which is hard. I thought that an actuary sat in a room with numbers all day and never had to interact with anybody. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was perfect. <laughs> and I actually it wasn't an intern. I just spent a day with an actuary in Des Moines. And he emphasized all the time how social it is. and how I mean, clearly he thinks that that's, you know, Anyway, he emphasized the wrong thing, and I went out of there, and I was like, well, I don't want to do that. Yeah, you were hoping he'd be like, well, you know, I haven't seen somebody in a, in a week, and it's kind of nice. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, no, I had no idea okay. what I was going to do. I, I just knew, I knew that the math and science area was where I belonged. Mm-hmm. When I was in grade school, I came home one time, and I said, Mom doing math is just like eating candy. <laughs> you said that to her? <laughs> Apparently. I That's don't, amazing. I don't remember it, but she tells it often. <laughs> so I, I find this really interesting. You haven't even brought Frisbee up yet. You, know, you have all these accolades, <laughs> and we haven't even gotten to, to disc golf or Frisbee or anything yet. And it's something that I think about a lot. You know, I go out, and I'm I'm only 29, and I meet all these older disc golfers that are like, you know, how long you've been playing? And I, you know, say I've been playing since I was 12. They're like, oh, I wish I could, you know, start playing at that age. But really, it's not really an excuse because you, when did you pick up Frisbee? I know it was somewhere, somewhere in college, Senior correct? in college. Yeah, you were a senior in college when you even figured out that you liked throwing a Frisbee. Or what was that the time? Kind of elaborate on that. Okay, so I actually had a computer science professor 
Thomas Hausman, who was a disc golfer, and he would talk about disc golf. I didn't know much about it other than what he would say. And he would often um, play with a little mini. And so for the semester that I had his class, I thought disc golf was played with discs that there's with are the, the size of a mini. <laughs> and then in some of my geology classes, um, met another guy, Jason Steffen, who was a professional disc golfer, had turned professional when he was still in high school, I believe. And at the time, he was arguably the best player in the state of Iowa. Wow. And um, every t-shirt he wore had a disc golf, logo, disc golf logo. Every story he told was about a disc golf tournament or a disc golf round. And quite frankly, I was just mercilessly making fun of him. Mm-hmm. Of course. And, you know, it's, it's geology classes. So we're taking field trips you know, on a somewhat regular basis. And one time he brought his bag along when we're at a park somewhere. <laughs> like, what? you can't just throw one. He's got to represent. <laughs> I love got... it. So he was like, Corver, I'm sick of this. Pick something out. And so I pointed at this grouping of trees, these three evergreen trees. I pointed the middle one about 300 feet away. And he pulled this red condor out of his oh, bag. Oh, the condor. What a disc. And the disc... I kid you not, the disc was halfway there and I had already fallen in love with the sport because I could tell, I could tell how he had controlled the mm-hmm. flight of that disc and it landed right, you know, it was within 15 feet of what I had pointed at. It was gorgeous. It was deliberate. It was incredibly impressive. And I, I turned to him and I said, teach me how to play. I fell in love with the sport before I ever touched Frisbee. Wow. And then, so then did you go out the next day and... So that was in, again, I'm at the University of Northern Iowa, and so the Blackhawk Metro Disc Golf League is there, and there are a couple different courses, one in Waterloo, one in Cedar, Cedar Falls, and there was a league that he took me to, and I played my first round in league on a Monday night. Really? Played my first tournament that Saturday. Did you really? Yes. That's so ambitious. <laughs> That's so, like... Was it one of those things where you caught the bug and you were just thinking about it nonstop? Like, what what was it? I So, again, in high school, I was always playing a sport. Yep, true. And then my freshman year in college, I was always playing a sport. Mm-hmm. And now I've had two years where I've done very little physical, mm-hmm. you know. Um, again, I'm taking a lot of classes, so I'm, I'm not doing much but study. Mm-hmm. And... I wasn't social at all, so it was it was just it was studying. a lot of studying, yeah. <laughs> it was just studying. And I was just absolutely craving an athletic outlet. Mm-hmm. And so it fell into my lap when I really wanted something like that. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I guess as a competitor, naturally you'll try to play the league. You want to meet people that play the game. You didn't go out and just play casual rounds? I mean, not not right away. Yeah. So First of all, I didn't own a disc. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just following Jason around and he's telling me, okay, throw this one, put it on this angle, mm-hmm. do that, throw it really hard, don't throw it hard. You know, I, I for the first, the first tournament that I played, he followed me mm-hmm. and he told me what to do with every shot. <laughs> That's great. You know, it worked well. Yeah. I was in the lead after the first round. Were you really? <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I, I didn't end up winning the tournament, but you know, I, I was in the tournament mm-hmm. and this was like my second round I'd ever played. Yeah. Wow. But he saw very quickly that this is not the way to teach this woman how to play, you know? So he 
pretty much cut me off cold turkey after a while. And he's like, you've got to figure this out. You Kicked know, you to the curb right you know, away. I'll, I'll teach you how to throw throws, but you've got to know when to throw it and why to throw it and where to throw it. I played league in this area for this year while I'm finishing out my, my senior year. This was fall in, in Iowa and yeah. you know how the weather is. So that didn't last very yeah. long. And then um, the next summer, 1993, uh, Jason wanted to go to the world championships. Well, Jason didn't have a car. I had a car. <laughs> Jason talked me to take it, talked me into taking him to the world championships, and it was the best thing that ever happened for my game. Where was it? It was in Huntsville, Alabama. Oh, okay. And so I, I took a couple guys down to the worlds, and you know, of course, I didn't play because mm-hmm. I'm still brand new. I'm not even a year in, and I watched everybody playing the whole time, and it. I was going stir crazy watching people play. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't, I, I want to be out there. <laughs> yeah. And so during, you know, during lunch, this was back when we'd play two rounds a day. So Yeah, like a million rounds <laughs> for the world championships. Yeah, yeah. You'd play four or five days of two rounds each and then the cut for, cut to the semis, cut oh to the finals. Oh my gosh. So anyway, I would play at lunch and, you know, some people would see me play and they'd be encouraging. And so that was cool. But But mainly it was the real thing that is really sticking in my mind is before the final nine, the women were going to play the first, four, top four women would play the first, um, and then the, the top four men would play. And I'm, I'm watching the top four women just putt, waiting for it to be their time. And I'm amazed at how good they are. And I'm just like, wow, that's so, they're, they're so smooth and they're so good and they're, they're so far away from the basket. And, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I don't know why, all of a sudden it was like, Ding! Like, well, you can do that if you want to. I mean, you can't do it right now, but do you want to? Yeah, I do. Okay, well, work for it. Mm-hmm. And I promised myself, it took me a while before I told anybody what I promised myself, but I promised myself that I would be good enough to be there with those top four women. You know, I don't care how long it takes, but mm-hmm. I'll get there. It's a big goal to set. Like, to just say, I'm going to be the best at this, and then go for well, it. Well, I didn't say I'm going to be the best Oh, yet. just keep up with th- those women. My, my, goal, okay. my goal was to be able to be competing in that final four. I see. So that, okay. was, that was the initial goal. But you're right. I mean, I eventually made, <laughs> yeah. made the other goals. This episode is brought to you by Delwood Disc Golf. Delwood is more than just a full-service pro shop. It's a shop dedicated to elevating Chicagoland disc golf to places it's never been before. Delwood is directly located on the canyons at Delwood Park, currently the number eight course in the world on U-Disc and home of the Disc Golf Pro Tour Silver Series event, Clash at the Canyons. It's a passionate community. It's a place to grow. It's an experience. Go check out Delwood. You will not regret it. Find them on Instagram at Delwood underscore disc underscore golf or shop online at DelwoodDG.com. So so the landscape of 1993 disc golf, uh, we have a lot of new players getting into the game, even just during the COVID lockdown. We have players getting into disc golf that probably don't truly know the landscape of 90s disc golf, let alone 1993 disc golf. I was two. <laughs> <laughs> I was too. No, that's okay. It's. I, I think it's fascinating, and I and I love talking about how far the game has come. In in whatever way you'd like to give, lay out the vibe of 1993 disc golf. Maybe the courses, maybe the equipment, and maybe maybe the fashion. If you'd like, if you'd like to, if you'd like to bring that up. So, I will probably 
be off by a few years, give or take. Totally fine. But, well, obviously the AVR around. The AVR has been around forever <laughs> as far yeah. as bevel-edged discs. That's not completely true, but that's basically I know what true. you mean. Okay. Um, so some of the top discs back then were, like I said, the Condor. Mm -hmm. That was that was still... Big disc. Big, oh, yeah, super wide. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Condor wouldn't fit in some bags now. No, max weight's <laughs> like, what, 200, 200 grams for the, the Condor? I think you're right. And it's still legal. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Because yeah. it's a, the diameter, yeah. Um, let's see, Cobra was a big disc. Uh, Scorpion, I think, was out by then. Oh, yeah. XDs. These were... are all Innova for the new players getting into the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A hammer. Remember a hammer? I've never thrown a hammer, actually. Kind of XD-ish. Mm -hmm. I... What was the big driver? Was there a big driver back then in 93? Viper, Scorpion. Okay, so Viper was out. I, I'm not Entirely. completely sure if it was out yet. I think it was. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't throwing the... Well, I've never had super fast arm speed, so I've never mm -hmm. thrown, you know, like... Whippets, I don't know if they were out, but they were, you know, that's kind of their... their the same era. Yeah, but, you know, that the stuff was all too beefy for me. Uh -huh. So a lot of discs that no one's really ever heard of. And there, it seemed like there was either... All, almost all of it was DX plastic, right? It was like oh, a yeah. lot of base plastic, yeah. almost no... I don't even think Champion was Oh, gosh, no. Champion was, was more like 2000. Yeah. So, so there was a long time of just beat-up Frisbees that you had to learn to, to control more nose angle than you did wing angle a lot of the times. Uh, so even learning the mechanics of the game was different. Is that, is that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So so most things were... Well, and, and people of that time that had already been playing for 10 or 15 years thought that the discs technology was amazing because it's so overstable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because of what they're used to. <laughs> yep, exactly. You know, I mean, you know, back in the day, the AVR was a driver when it first came mm -hmm. out, you know? I mean, that was that was a long drive, that was a long disc. Mm -hmm. So so now that we've got stuff that's so overstable, you know, but yes, everything everything was DX, everything got beat up. So you, you would hold, or you would carry multiple discs in your bag, not because you might lose one, but because you might hit a couple trees and it's not gonna act the same way. And it way. would ruin the flight of yes. the disc mid-round and you'd yes. have no <laughs> chance of moving forward. I get that. But yeah, yeah, I mean, you could, make a disc more overstable by putting the nose up, you know, mm -hmm. making it hover and making it come back in. And that's why a lot of the old school players throw the way they do. Yeah. Lots of, everybody throws with hyzer and you mm -hmm. flip it up. I mean, there's, there's none of this, this might sound derogatory, but I call it jerky boy where you, you know, you threw something super overstable mm -hmm. with a really big anhyzer and you know that it's going to come back at the end. Yeah. You know, there was none of that. You none. had to learn how to snap a Frisbee essentially, even with the equipment you had, it's not a Frisbee you're tossing, but you still had to learn how to like snap the disc. And it's almost like uh, it was still very upper body oriented. I, I notice a lot of old school players, you know, obviously their footwork is good, but they have that kind of swooping motion. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you there. Oh, cool. So I, yes, I mean, yes, that happens. And, and, but I, I don't think that was because of the technology. Oh. I think that's maybe because they played catch as a child and that's how they know how to throw. Okay. Because I very consciously, put my lower body into my throw mm -hmm. from not day one, but day one of me trying yeah. to become a better thrower. I see. And, Good. and yeah. So, I mean, that knowledge was already there. It's just people, I think now people have seen people throwing Frisbees mm -hmm. enough that you can tell when somebody's throw is a little off. You might not know why it's off, but mm -hmm. you can tell something's off. Back then, you know, it was still so novel seeing somebody throw 
a frisbee that yeah. you couldn't tell if somebody would come through at the same time with the upper body and the lower body. But if you compare that to somebody swinging a bat, if you saw somebody swinging a bat and they didn't open up their hips before they brought their their uh, shoulders through, mm -hmm. it would look so bad. Mm -hmm. We're not used to seeing the frisbee throw in that way, so we can't identify right away and say, oh, look, it, they didn't. They didn't do lower body first. And that's, and that's what's fascinating to me. So then how, I guess, moving into, you know, farther into your disc golf life, how did you learn? There didn't seem to be a lot of resources out there for no, new players. I, I took my own video of a couple of players. I had Jason as a resource. I also took video of Iowa Pro, um, Jeff Harper. Mm -hmm. He was the other arguably best player in the state at the time. And he had very pretty form. He... He danced in college, so he had a very cool. Uh, it was just very smooth, mm -hmm. and so I recorded them, and then I recorded myself. This was the most um, striking when I was trying to learn a big turnover. Um, Jason was trying to help me learn this turnover, and I remember getting so angry because he would say, "Okay, put the angle like this. Put the angle like I am. I am." <laughs> it's so hard, yeah. And and I would so I actually, you know, I had to record myself because I didn't have the best kinesthetic awareness, so I had to see what I was doing. So I would record it. I would record one throw. I would go watch it. I would record one throw. I would go watch it, and then I would, as soon as I got it, so that I it did what I wanted it to do, and then I would look and see what that looks like. Okay, that. That is what I want it to do. And now remember what that feels like. So that's how I had to wow. teach myself to get in the right position. So it was a lot of just mirroring. Yeah. That is, I love that. <laughs> like in the development of our game, now we have, you know, there's a guy I know in Chicago who has broken down with these, you know, slow-mo apps and is able to geometrically show like the similarities between all the top throwers and why they do it. And we're starting to get close to figuring out like the the golf robot swing, you know. But right. I think it's so cool that it's almost like you aided in the development of form because you had to do the hard work of, of just straight up going, do I look like that? Do I look like that? Do I look like, like, that's amazing. So how much would you do that? Uh, I honestly don't remember. I did it as much as I needed to. Mm -hmm. I, I guess we can move forward a little bit. Like you began playing a lot of disc golf. You, you were still in school, right? You went to grad school? I went to grad school right after undergrad. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then when in your head, you're going to grad school for, I think you said computer, computer science. science. Yep. Were you already scheming this professional disc golf thing? Like when did that start to pop up in your head? Like, oh, I can maybe do this as like a career in a, in a time in disc golf where it really wasn't a much of a career. Oh gosh, no, definitely wasn't yeah. wasn't thought of as a career. So I knew that I wanted to try to be as good as those girls that I saw. Mm -hmm. And it took me maybe another season before I figured out this means I need to have, you know, multiple discs. I need to go to a field and I need to learn those discs and I need to make, I need to be able to make those discs go straight, right, left, no matter what the disc is. Mm -hmm. And once I became regimented and quite literally wrote down the goal and what I wanted to do to get to that goal, things started to fall into place nicely for me. Wow. And so it was... Uh, 1995 that I went to my first Worlds. That was an amateur Worlds. Mm -hmm. That was in Cincinnati. And I actually went into that thinking that I was 
hopefully going to get second because <laughs> I thought there was another girl that I thought that was much better than I was. And after the first round, I was leading her by one and it was over. I, I knew it was over because I, I thought she was better than I was. Mm -hmm. And I saw that, that I can play as well as she can. And so I knew once I was out in front that that it was over. Yeah, it looks like you won by four, and it was uh, Christy Vandenborsch. Is that yes. the name? Yeah, although Bosch Vandenborsch. That, that's not the woman that I was scared of. I, oh. I, I did. I wasn't Christy. Oh my goodness. Okay, we're talking about style. Mm -hmm. so, the classic disc golf Christy, apparel. Christy during during the finals, um, she was a, a graphics designer and kind of a little wild <laughs> child, and she she cut the bottom of her shirt in like a Fred Flintstone. Tooth. I know exactly Jagged what you mean. Tooth. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just because. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That would never fly <laughs> no, these days. But no. I just love that. <laughs> That's great. So then, yeah, you win an M, an M World Championship. So and I, and uh, I turned pro immediately following that. So then, what was that? I mean, back then, you know, what was that pro landscape for you? Did you you weren't touring right away as a professional player? No, player's? no. I'm so I'm still in grad school. Okay. At that time. So then you're in grad school. Were you starting to like iron out what you wanted to do with a career at the time? Like like with your master's degree that you were about to get? What what happened? It felt like life was screaming towards me and I didn't know what the heck I wanted to do. And I was terrified, to be honest. Um, maybe, maybe that's one of the reasons why I did spend so much time on golf because I was putting off the what do you want to do as an adult question. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that's the case, mm -hmm. but it, it could have been because, yeah, yeah I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I loved programming, mm -hmm. but the thought of going and finding a job was, quite frankly, it's scary. It's scary. Of course yeah. it is. Yeah. I mean, disc golf is a pretty nice way to run away from that. And I think, uh, you know, road life, like we both know, like sometimes it does feel like an escape from like the regular existence that a college you know, going individual would have to do after they graduate. Well, so I get that. Remember I mentioned that I did everything that adults told me to do. So mm -hmm. I, I was as straight and narrow as is possible. And mm -hmm. I had never veered from right down the middle. And mm -hmm. so in, in grad school, I had an opportunity to teach as a um, teaching assistant. And then after that, my then husband got a professorship and no, he didn't actually. I'm sorry. He was working on his PhD. Well, I then taught and I taught night classes so mm -hmm. that I could play Frisbee during the day. And this was kind of a, you know, once he gets his PhD, then we'll go somewhere. Mm -hmm. I'll follow him because he'll mm -hmm. have the big job. And, yeah. and, um, I, I started to get to a point where it looked like, you know what, if, if, well, first of all, I'm, I'm doing well here, but there aren't that many women here. Mm -hmm. And it's not that fun to play when there aren't that many women. I want to know if I'm doing well against the best women. Yeah, what are you made of? So yeah. I need to go find the best women. So I was I was traveling as much as I could, mm -hmm. but it was driving to anything within eight hours and then flying, you know, when I could. You know, I didn't have a lot of money as yeah. a grad student. And I was trying to go to all the events that had the most women and <laughs> the way that I was finding out how which events would have the most women is um in 93 I built 
uh, disc golf website. You did? Yes. It was the third disc golf website out there. I was going to ask about this. Please elaborate. <laughs> so I, I built a website. It had like four pages. One of the pages eventually was a calendar. And so this is back in the day where, you know, there are, what, 50 events a year. So mm -hmm. I could email or call every single tournament director and I would do so. And I had a list of potential things that they could do that would entice women to come to their events. So this is my, this is my guys. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm letting you know what things that you can do to make women feel more comfortable. And then if they said that they were going to do like two or three, then I'd put a little female symbol on that month. But then I also had a mailing list of all the women. And so then I'd send it out to the mailing list and I would try to coordinate women staying together. But, but see, they all had to come through me. So I know where they're going. So I know who's going to have the most people. And so I know which tournaments <laughs> to go to. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> It's like the most self-serving but generous thing that I've ever, it's like yin and yang. But, but luckily, it did probably benefit a lot of people. I hope so. Yeah. But then you were able to go out and see where you needed to play. Yeah, because I, you know, it's worth it to me to fly to California if I know there's going to be ten women there. Or more importantly, you know, like if if Annie Kremel's going to play, exactly. or if Elaine's King King is going to play, you know, then it's worth it for me to go there to play mm -hmm. against them. I am honestly jaw dropped. I like don't. <laughs> I don't know what to say other than it makes sense coming from you. After you know all the things you accomplished afterwards, it's like okay, you are a doer, which is an amazing, uh, I guess, character trait to have. So. With that said, I'm looking at 1996. You played Open Women. You obviously weren't crazy on tour, like you had said, but there's a lot of ones on here. There, you were winning some tournaments. And what was your game looking like? You know, this is pre World Championship, pre you know full time tour, fame, you know, all this fame in the community. What was your game looking like then? And what did you know you needed to like improve on? Uh, I needed to improve on confidence, I believe. I have to think that I deserve to play well. Mm -hmm. And the way that I get there is by putting in the time. So it doesn't feel right to me if, you know, I just happen to be naturally good at it and I go out and I win. I mean, that that's not acceptable. Mm, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I have to feel like I put in the time and that I deserve it and that I earned it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm still sort of testing the waters. I don't know the women all that well yet. You know, I don't know who's got what skills and, and you know, I'm incredibly shy. And, <laughs> and so I'm just sort of, you know, wide-eyed, taking it all in, watching it. And, you know, I, I'm lacking in everything. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm legitimately at the bottom of the women's pro field at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but I always felt that the way to get better is to play with people who are better than you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm never going to increase my skill level by staying with, you know, the, the advanced field. So playing with the women or playing with the men, seeing what, if they can do it, I can do it. Yeah. You know, I, I might, again, I might not be able to do it today, but I can do it. Yeah. Wow. And it makes sense that like you've pushed yourself to like play with these better players because of how you traditionally got better was with a, a, an old school video camera, just mirroring your skills off the people that inspired you. I think there's so much to be said about that even today. Like don't like to not be afraid to go play against people in a division that are way better than you. It opens your eyes to decision-making that you would never have thought of. It opens your eyes to, uh, 
the thing that I learned a lot from going on tour is how to play the hole to limit bad luck, you know, to, to shape a shot down, down a tough hole that'll limit your kicks, you know, in a specific direction. All these little intricacies can't be learned unless you play with, you know, people who are masterful of the game. So Right, right. I mean, playing with people who can throw farther than you, they're going to throw, you know, higher lines and over the top of things, and you might not have even thought of that before, so mm -hmm. now you're going to try it. Um, I remember playing a practice round with, I think it was Jim Oates, and we would get to the, the basket, and he would turn around, and he would look at the tee, and, and after he did this on, you know, a bunch mm -hmm. of holes, like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I like to see... I like to see the perspective from this angle. You know, I want to know what it looks like from this side. And, and it gives me a better idea of where I can approach the basket from. And, you know, you get little tricks and trades from everybody if yeah. you listen. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I, and that's kind of how I started my disc golf was I was so fascinated with the flight of a disc that I, I chased people who were really good at it. And I was just like, like, how do I do that with my <laughs> 150 foot backhand that I had, you know, like what, how do I get there? And f for you, you know, 96, you said you weren't touring and were you still in grad school at the time? Were you still working towards that? What? I graduated in 96. Okay. So where was that fork in the road for you? Fork in the road. Fork in the road for, do I follow the path of <laughs> grad school and the next transition and oh my gosh, I why am I going down this road in the disc golf world? What happened? So I really didn't have any decisions to make at this point because my husband then was still working on his PhD. So we're still just sort of stationary. Got to stay close to Iowa State so that he can finish. And this is when I started um, teaching. And I started teaching for Iowa State initially and then eventually was teaching for Simpson College, um, teaching night classes so I could go play Frisbee during the day. And... I didn't have any life plans. I, I was just really sort of enjoying the moment. Mm -hmm. And I wanted, I think by that time, yeah, actually, I know by that time, I already had the goal of, I, I want to be at the top. Okay. And uh, again, I don't care how long it takes. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to work until I get there. So this is when I'm, I'm really becoming well actually 96 is when i got my sponsorship my first sponsorship oh, from discraft really yes okay well how, well how did that go in 96 how okay. does the sponsorship you know search happen so what happened is uh in the 96 pro world championships i ended up acing a little uphill blind hole with a hawk Nice disc. Oh, great disc. Uh-huh. And allegedly, it was the first ace by a pro woman in a pro world championships. And so it was a big deal at the time. Yeah. And so Sylvia Vokes went and found Jim Kenner and she said, this young woman just aced with a hawk and you need to sponsor her. Or you need, I don't know what she said. You know, you need to give her something. And so I got a disc of, a, I got a box of 100 discs from Discraft. And that was my entry into... Discraft. I mean, back then it wasn't, I don't think I even got, you know, a single entry fee paid for, mm -hmm. you know, I might, I might've gotten three large men's polo shirts and, <laughs> yeah. and discs, you know, it, mm -hmm. but it, it was, it made me feel a little bit more legitimate and, mm -hmm. you know, I could tell my parents, look at, I'm sponsored. Yeah. <laughs> well, it makes practicing easier too. Like you, like, yes. what was that box yes. full of? Yes. That's exactly why I brought a Stratus, pink Stratuses, uh -huh. blue Comets, <laughs> Uh, let's see, cyclones. I don't remember what color my cyclones were. I wanted yes. all of my discs, 
all of the one disc to be the same color because mm -hmm. I didn't want any of them to have a personality because I didn't want to feel bad if I broke, mm -hmm. lost, forgot a disc. I just pull out the next one and it looked exactly like the exactly. one that I was I wanted before. So because they're all the same, you know, I, I, I would take them to a field and the field that I normally threw at was adjacent to uh, an elementary school playground. And often it would be during the middle of the day. So there'd be kids out there on the playground and, you know, they knew where they could go and they couldn't go onto the field that I was on, but they could go right up to the edge. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite memories of all of my disc golf career is watching this group of four young girls. They were just enthralled with my throwing and they were also young girls and they wanted to be cheerleaders. And of so, yeah. you know, I, I would throw and then they would cheer for me on the side and they, you know, it would coordinated cheers. What a wholesome moment. So, so, you know, they're actually standing in a line and they're pretending they have pom-poms and they're, they're doing the same moves and they're go Frisbee girl, go, go. No way. Throw Frisbee girl, throw, throw. For your field work? Yes. You weren't getting honked at and like yelled at by people? <laughs> That's usually what happens to I'm me. I'm crying because it is the sweetest thing in the whole world. And every time I would go out there, if they were, if they were at recess, they would cheer for me. It was amazing. And then another awesome story or another awesome thing that happened to me while I'm throwing on this field, it happened to be about three o'clock in the afternoon. So they're letting out and they're starting to go home. And remember I said that all of my discs are the same color uh -huh. in the same mold. And so, you know, let's see, I just thrown the pink stratuses. So they're probably turning over and, mm -hmm. you know, and then I pull out the XLs and so then I'm going to throw mm. a hyzer. And so I had just gotten through one color and two boys, I mean, they, they were young, maybe seven or eight, mm -hmm. and they're walking pretty much right behind me. And one of the boys says to the other boy, I wonder what the blue ones do. <laughs> Kids are so enamored by a flying disc. It's not like a football that goes up and down. It's not like a softball that goes up and down. Yeah, it's three-dimensional, not yes. two. And the imagination of a kid can just go... Yeah, so that's amazing. Yeah, I I will never forget those kids. And it, I, I mean, I've got tears in my eyes right now thinking uh -huh. of those girls. They had like two different versions of the cheer <laughs> and they would just go through it the whole, the entire recess. They would just, the whole time. It was... So that was your spot for a little bit. Yeah. I mean, as much as a hundred discs is not a crazy sponsorship for the fact of literally giving you options to create like a driving range effect for yourself, that's a big deal. Like that's like one of the best parts of a sponsorship is to say, oh, I can take my stack of buzzes to a field and I can throw 20 of them and pick two that I like, you know, even things like that. So then I guess I'm still, I'm still curious. You got your sponsorship. Still the landscape of professional touring disc golf wasn't crazy established. I know Climo had won, you know, however many worlds up, you know, up until 97. Um, so he was clearly a professional player, but it took him like seven worlds to even get an endorsement deal, you know, something like that. So, yeah, I don't even know. I mean, it, it wasn't even on people's mind. It's not something you thought about. Yeah. So then when did you start thinking, I'm going to travel and play all these tournaments and throw everything to the wind? Like what happened? <laughs> I still need to know this from you, Juliana. <laughs> After 97, I saw good progress. Mm -hmm. By 98, things are clicking. You mm -hmm. know, I'm... I'm to a point where... I'm starting to look at these stats yeah, right now. I know that um, my skill level is is high enough that I could potentially take any tournament that I go to. Mm -hmm. 
And my husband at the time was an advanced player and he enjoyed it, but it wasn't in his blood. Mm-hmm. But he was up for an adventure. He'd finished his PhD. He's ready to do something. And to be honest, we weren't really working out. And mm-hmm. so we thought, let's try something new. Mm-hmm. And so we sort of went on the road knowing either this is going to make or break us. Well, it broke us pretty quickly. Oh, no. <laughs> but no, I mean, it was a good thing. I yeah. Mean, I'm better that. Change of scenery. Better that than to yeah. stay together in the traditional sense and yeah. not, you know, not. And not grow. Yeah. So, yeah. and before that, you know, we would be on tour during the summer in just a, like, not a, not a van that you lived in, yeah. but a van that you could carry a lot of stuff exactly. in. Exactly. And just trying to hit everything I can that's within driving distance that's going to have more than one car to women. Mm-hmm. And you were right in saying that you thought you could take down any tournament. And 1998, you quote unquote lost two times and you got second and third place and you won the rest of the events that you played, including your first world championship. Yes. In 98. And where was that? And I guess- Cincinnati. It was Cincinnati again. Yeah. So you got to go back and you won. Different courses, but same. And you dominated. Oh my gosh. (laughs) You think so? Gosh, I was so scared. Even on that last putt, I was still so scared. I didn't allow myself to internalize the fact that I was ahead. Yeah. Until it was Elaine King. You beat Elaine King, Annie Kreml, like legends of the game still. And you won by... 13 strokes? Oh, I did? Gosh. Yeah, you, yeah, you know what? You did. Even though you played a thousand rounds at Worlds back in the day, you won by 13 strokes. And was that kind of a solidifying factor for you? Like That was so gratifying. So going into that event, I, again, I knew that I could win if I played well. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that I would, mm-hmm. but I knew that I could. And so I did something very scary. I invited my mother and my grandmother to come to the event, which I thought, okay, this could be the kiss of death. But, you know, I want family there Mm -hmm. if things go well. I'm so grateful. My grandmother sat in a lawn chair on hole 18 for a couple of the days. And some of the, like um, Dave Greenwell went out of his way to talk to my grandma. Uh, Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And, you know, um, for her to be able to, to see that, was uh i'm I'm so happy that Mm. she was able to be there and uh that i was able to stay in the moment and stay focused and and play well but again i didn't let myself think of the end until the very end and i still remember the very last hole i've got apparently a significant lead yeah (laughs) you know what you did (laughs) and so it was uh it was not a very long hole, but the whole thing was over water and the basket was kind of on this little land bridge and it wasn't very big. And I don't even remember if I took a, I don't remember if I laid up and played safe or if I went for it, but I remember that I had a putt that was, let's say 15 feet, whatever. And there were a couple other women that were inside of me. And so I get up to put my last putt in and Annie Kreml just about tackles me. I mean, she's like, Get out of here, Corver. It's not your turn. Yeah, <laughs> like, just, just let us finish, move. and then you take your last shot. <laughs> and so, you know, I step back, and they finish, and they walk off, and then, then I stand there, and I take my last putt, and then, literally, the wall came down the second the putt hit, and I collapsed on the ground, and I just started crying. <laughs> wow! Oh it my was, gosh! It was so big for me because you know it was, 
it was the thing that I wanted to work for for the last two and a half years. And you did it. And, and you I... did it well, very well. Oh my <laughs> gosh. And to have only said, I'm going to do this. And then two and a half years later, <laughs> just like, cha-ching, like, there you go. 13 stroke victory, like over the best players in the world. Clearly you had it cut out for you. And clearly it was starting to become something bigger than what you maybe thought. I know that 99 was not much different. I mean, <laughs> I guess maybe did you start to take the career of a disc golfer a bit more seriously in 1999? So, so I wasn't on tour yet at this oh, time. Oh, okay. I didn't sell the house and quit the job until uh, 2000. Okay. So I was, you know, I, I actually, yeah, I was already at the top when when I went out to see the world. Basically. Yeah, so you were flying out to the events, coming back. Like you did a lot of like traveling back and forth for well, quite some time. Living in Iowa, I could hit an awful lot of events mm -hmm. driving, and okay. especially during that the summer. That makes sense. You know, You're right. During the summer, I yeah, I was teaching, so I didn't I didn't have to be anywhere during the summer, and we could go out for extended I road see. trips. So. 99 you have an even better season you play even more tournaments you win again your you know your second world championship and another season where okay so you only lost one time and you got second place and then you won 29 events oh gosh and i still feel like i still feel like that season was a failure because i lost that one that one tournament that was at browns and bows it was a midweek tournament between the mother load and the master's cup uh -huh. and gosh i i apologize i'm going to sound like I'm making excuses. No. And I'm not because Elaine beat me and Elaine's awesome and she always has been. Mm -hmm. But I uh, I was traveling to that event with a young girl who was playing in the Sacramento area. And well, you know, I'm in bed by 10 and <laughs> most other people weren't <laughs> yeah. at that event. And I was awakened by this girl at about 1230 at night. Oh, no. And she tells me that she had locked my keys in my car. All of our golf stuff, it's all in the car. Oh, no. So I call AAA, and we're out in the middle of nowhere. Oh. I don't know if you know where Browns and Bows is, but it is very isolated. Okay. So I'm standing on this gravel road, mm -hmm. the entrance into this property, for like three hours waiting for AAA to come. Right before a tournament. Well, this is this is a Saturday night. So this is, or not Saturday. I mean, it was midweek. So it was a two-day tournament. So okay. this is the after the first day of play. So mm -hmm. this is before the second day of play. So I spent like 12.30 to 3.30 out on the gravel road waiting for AAA to come to get back into the car so that we would be able to access and leave and, oh and have gosh. our desk. And, and I lost by one stroke, I believe. So... Oh, it still just it hurts. Blew, it blew the perfect season for you, mid midweek B tier. Yeah. But I mean, to Elaine, who's obviously right. one of the best players of all time. Yes. But almost a perfect season. And I guess before we kind of go into like touring Juliana Corver, new timeline, Ching. you know, you had mentioned, and this is a very interesting thing that I read, did an interview with Disc Golf Magazine a little bit ago, and you mentioned that you did not play a lot of practice rounds, like at the courses. You no, said, I thought that was a waste of time. Yeah, and that's something that most players these days do. They're always at the course. It's packed, jammed full of people. And you said you were out in the field, and that's it. I would often throw on a football field, so I knew exactly how far I was throwing mm -hmm. each disc. Mm -hmm. And I would force 
overstable stuff over. I would hyzer understable stuff. You know, I would just do anything I could imagine with, well, for a backhand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> with with the plastic so that whatever situation I find myself in, I know what disc to use and what throw to throw. And, and you know, I, I also didn't want to have a great practice round and then come in and not do as well and I then see. think, well, gosh, you know, if only I could have, you know, I didn't want to have, if only I could have in my mind. So I trusted that I knew what throw would work given wherever I was on the, on the course. But that's not to say that I would go into a course blind. Uh-huh. I would play the courses okay. before. I needed to know where the dangers were. I needed to know the distances. Mm-hmm. I needed to know if there, you know, the topography of the land by the basket. You know, I needed to know that yeah. stuff, but I didn't need to drill that stuff. Yeah. So yeah, you didn't do the drilling at the course. No. You did the drilling at the field and then, yeah, you saw the course, obviously. You're not going to play it blind, but it's almost like you were developing this like subconscious feel, like you weren't just rehearsing tee shots. I didn't think that it was time effective to drill on a course. That That is such a cool, unique uh, mindset that I hope a lot of people hear and I, I think it might help. And also, it was much more social on the course, and yeah. so that was slightly scary. Yeah, I know I know what you mean. <laughs> and I could go find a private field and mm. just not have to worry about what other people thought or what other people saw or interacting, and it was my comfort zone. I remember, obviously, you have an incredible season and win another world championship, and you're starting to get known a little bit. You're starting to get uh, recognized by people in the community. And I, I remember hearing that you at one point got invited to go to, was it Taiwan? Yes, I did go to Taiwan. Was that for the World Games or what exactly was that for? Taiwan, it was called the Friendship Cup. And they just wanted somebody from the United States that was affiliated with the PDJ to make their event seem more legitimate. I don't know that they specifically asked for me. I'm not exactly sure why I was chosen, but uh. I was. And so, yeah, I went by myself to Taiwan, and I did clinics there. I didn't actually play in the Friendship Cup because mm-hmm. that was a match play event, kind of like, uh, well, we used to call it the Culture Clash. Oh. I think they call it the President's Cup now, but that was between mm. Japan and Taiwan at the time. Cool. Yeah, so I was sort of the official. You're like an ambassador. Yes. What? That's so interesting. It was. It was How amazing. was Taiwan? So I had to have an interpreter. And so I would go to these events, and I would... They would want me to tell how to throw or how to do, you know, whatever it is. And so I would speak and then the interpreter would go. And it, it seemed like it was inevitable. If, if, if my instruction was short, their translation was super long mm-hmm. with laughing. And if my instruction was long, then their translation was really short with laughing <laughs> yeah so, so you couldn't quite get the, like the technical like stuff it, you know it was it was really it really felt disjointed you know I I, I was very sheltered growing <laughs> up I was very naive I yeah. was very um, hadn't experienced a lot yeah and Taiwan there was a lot of drinking especially at mm-hmm. lunch and one time they turned a cup over and they put a little bit of whatever it was they were drinking on top and they set it on fire. Mm-hmm. And and so at one point I thought, okay, you know, I can't keep saying no. I'm just going to pretend. And so, you know, I, I put it up to my lips and I, I was thinking that I could do this without letting even a drop pass. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not sure if it was, you know... It, what it burned i don't know what oh, it no. was but it was it was like fire on my oh my goodness 
Um, so, so I am just totally, I mean, and you know, being as introverted as I am in this, in this group of people that I can't talk to and I don't understand. And, and so one of the, the, the sweet Japanese men could tell that I was uncomfortable and, um, and took me aside and said, things will be tamer in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about that because that was another thing that blew my mind growing up as a kid, starting to see these disc golf videos was Japan Open and seeing the ceremonies and seeing how professionally they treated the players. And it, it was just like my dream because I wanted to show the whole world when I was a kid how cool disc golf was. But it's so hard to do sometimes when the videos you got have like, you know, the high tube socks and the cargo shorts and the and the wobbly camera and which was fine because it still was progress in the world of disc golf, but I I was gr- greatly hoping to show someone like, look, these professionals went to this place and they performed at the at a professional level with a gallery and that's what I was hoping for. Talk to me about those experiences. So this first experience that I had in Japan was not the Japan Open, it was the World Games. It's kind of the the younger baby sister to the Olympic Committee. Okay. And so it's a stepping stone for sports to get into the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And in 2001, both Disc Golf and Ultimate were invited to compete. And so this was a match play event, and we had six countries represented, and each country sent one man and one woman. And the countries were determined by who played well at the previous world championships. So that was the Worlds in 2000 in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, let's see if I can get this right. It was U.S., Canada, New Zealand, Japan, and Great Britain, I believe. And, oh, I'm missing one. Pardon me. You did, a great, you did a great job. <laughs> and so Barry Schultz and I represented the United States, and this was match play. So we uh, would team up with one of the mm-hmm. other players in, in our divisions, and we narrowed it down to who's going to be in the, medal ma- the gold medal match, the silver medal match, and so on. And then at the very end, the top two women and the top two men played together for that that gold medal. So Barry is, gosh, is he playing against, might be Mike Sullivan from Canada. Okay. And I'm playing against uh, Nilafar Mosavar Romani from Sweden. And Barry killed it. Barry won, you know, mathematically won way before it was over yeah. with. And I was not actually doing very well. Mm. I was behind uh, two or three strokes with three or four holes left. So I was, I was behind almost as many strokes as holes were left. And I still, I don't think that I would have won if not for Barry. Barry got in my face and he was dead serious. And he said, now it's your turn. Go. And yeah, so I, I got the next one. I got the next one. And by the last hole, Nilafar and I are tied with points. So it, it comes down to the last hole, and, and and I won the last hole for the gold medal. Oh, my gosh. In a place that you're probably not crazy comfortable in either. Like, Oh, my goodness. The course that we played was bonkers. So there were so many sports going on that I'd never heard of, like cork ball and, you know, just stuff that I had never seen. Mm. And we were kind of in, um, we were like 30 miles north of where the arenas were and all of the other main sports were because they needed to find land for us. Mm -hmm. But the land that they had was not big. Mm -hmm. And some of our holes were basically medians in a parking lot. 
Really? Yeah. So it was, there was a lot of OB and it was really weird stuff. Like hole 18, I remember the fairway was a road. So you, you can't land on the fairway. You have to land yeah. on the side. And, and, and the side of the road was kind of, there was a little bit of an embankment. So I teed off first because I had just won, you know, the last couple of points. And I remember, you know, you have to throw something understable, but you can't, you can't turn it over too much because mm -hmm. then it's going to hit and it's going to roll back into the road. So you have to turn, you have to kind of turn something over, but yet land it with that hyzer angle. Oh, so it stays okay. on that embankment. And I was able to do that and Nilafar went in the road. And so, yeah, it, it was a bizarre, bizarre course, but it was fun mm -hmm. because it was so different. So technical, it oh, sounds like. Oh gosh, I have to go back to Taiwan and tell you about the course that we played there. Yeah. So the Taiwanese course that not the one that they played for the Friendship Cup. That was kind of a traditional course mm -hmm. for the time. But one of the places we went down to the south side of the island and they hadn't had a lot of influence. So they kind of just did things the way that they wanted to. And it was very untraditional. And I didn't grow up playing Frisbee. Disc golf was my first okay. flying disc sport. Interesting. So I didn't have, at the time, I, th I think I've got it now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but at the time, I didn't have these other Frisbee skills. Mm -hmm. And they had played Frisbees, and disc golf was new, and so they kind of incorporated that. Like, I remember one hole, there was a wire strung across, and you had to skip under the wire for the hole. You know, that was a mando, skip under the wire. And I there, love that. And there was another one where there's a, a big well, big-ish tree, and they've got a big-ish branch leaning against it. And you, not only do you have to go through that, you have to two-finger roll through that, specifically two-finger oh roll. Oh my gosh. And these are these are skills that I did not have at the time. Of course not. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and I'm coming in as the world champion. And so I, I sucked on these goofy little... Trick shots. Yeah. It was so anxiety producing. And Thank goodness the, mm -hmm. the last half of that course was much larger and bigger and, and kind of allowed me to show mm -hmm. what I could do. And, exactly. And but it's just so amazing that like even just a few years prior, you were not even thinking about leaving the country as a as an ambassador. You're like, oh, well, I'm going to get my job and I'm going to, you know, use my master's and blah, blah, blah. And here you are, three world championships, potentially now four, 2001, I believe. But I, I mean, we could just talk about every world championship. You've won, you've won five and you're in the Hall of Fame. But I do, I want to talk about as that, you know, progressed, obviously you are now a professional player. You're full-time competing, traveling. And I, I took it seriously. I yeah. treated myself as a professional. Well, I mean, not that I had grown up knowing what a professional athlete, well, it, sort of. I mean, my, my father was actually drafted by the Atlanta Falcons. So really? he, he was a pretty good. <laughs> pretty big deal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he didn't end up playing for the team. He was cut before, before the season started, but he went on and played semi-pro and, you know, he's a big, strong guy yeah. that did a lot of physical stuff and really, really was a big part of why I worked so hard at sports because he installed that in me. He said, you know, you may have been blessed with some physical attributes that will help you in things, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that you can't or that you shouldn't be the hardest working person on the field. Exactly. It shows. It's showing, you know, and, and even just the way you talk, I can tell you have a pro athlete's mindset. It's on preparation and it's on execution and it's how you balance the two you know and it's ch especially in golf it's so challenging i want to talk about a more big picture concept as your career progressed 
And you keep talking, you know, through the whole episode, how it's, it's hard for you to be in the spotlight sometimes. And, you know, as you are getting more and more popular, you're getting flown all over the world playing Frisbee and, you know, doing this thing that you were just like, yeah, I like the flight of a disc. I'm going to go play this. And then all of a sudden here you are, you know, five world championships at this time you were on top and you were, you were the best player how did that play out for you? Because obviously you didn't tour that long. We have players nowadays that are, a lot of our world champions are on, they've been on tour for 13 years, yeah. you know, things like that. Yours kind of stopped. So like, what was the, you didn't have a long touring career, I guess is what I said. Well, I, I never went into this thinking this is what I'm going to do for my life. Okay. I, I went into this because I wanted, sort of wanted to see how it would play out. It was just an opportunity and I wanted to get to the top and I wanted to, enjoy it for a while yeah. and you know I got to play in every state in the union and many many countries and it was not that this was why I did it but oh my gosh was it a social education and I think that was incredibly valuable for me mm -hmm. you know small rural farm girl mm -hmm. getting to see the world through frisbee yeah and I, I guess like I, I I am curious like what happened as you began to slow down your play? Like you kind of, it looked like you had just kind of a drop off, you know, you, you like played and played and played and traveled and traveled and traveled. And then you won and won and won. And it's like, okay, you have all, you have endorsement deals. Now you have like, you know, signature discs, you have potentially this long career ahead of you as disc golf was growing rapidly. And then you just kind of dipped off. What happened? So that is definitely multifaceted, and I'll touch on some of them. Okay. So the, the quick and easy one is I got bored, hmm. but there's much more to that. Yeah. My family could never understand what I was doing because I couldn't hide in this arena. Mm -hmm. And I kind of could only take that so long, and being on top, eventually people are rooting against you mm. and I took it personally at one point I lost my putt I got the yips oh no yeah and because of how I, I actually I don't know why why I did this but my whole self-worth was wrapped up in my game and when I started even if I would win if I wasn't playing well Mm -hmm. I was a failure and it was not healthy mentally. And yes, the sport was growing, but not that fast, yeah. especially not for women. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're talking about these, you know, I've got a season where I win almost 30 events and yeah. I still barely make $10,000. Yeah. I actually would just to highlight this, to make sure listeners understand like, Decorated Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame player, 1999, 30 events, 29 wins, and one second place, and you made $8,800. Yeah. Yeah. And and we're playing the same tournament with the same people. There's nothing new that is mm -hmm. that is an adventure. Sure, it's an adventure to be on the road and, and all of that. I can't stand up in my house, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, living in a van. Yeah, I get that. And And... When I found disc golf, I was really craving an athletic outlet. And by this time, I was sort of craving an intellectual one. Ah. And it just had run its course. And, you know, a, a big part of that was 
losing the putt and being humiliated, mm-hmm. frankly. And I thought that if people saw me fail at this, that it erases everything that I've done yeah. up to this point. Yeah. And that was terrifying. It's a terrible like thought loop to be in, for sure. Yeah. And so it stopped being fun. Mm. And it had kind of stopped being fun when the money really meant something. Yeah. If I don't win, then how do I get to the next town? How do I eat? Yeah. Yeah. I get that. So, so it was already sort of, it just felt too heavy. Yeah. Okay. I get that. I will call that end of timeline two. <laughs> you know, we have timeline where we have Julie and now we yes. have Juliana Corver with JK. Um, something I really admire about you. And one of the reasons I wanted to come out here and have you on my show is I, I think you have made, and maybe you have different words for it. It seems like a really beautiful, graceful transition into a, like a lateral evolution in the Frisbee world. And I played double disc with you all day today, and I feel like you smiled more than you uh, didn't smile. <laughs> we'll just put yeah. that. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I feel this energy from you. We've never gotten to play any other disc discipline before, but you've kind of dove into the, the, the overall world of Frisbee now. And talk to me about that. And like, you know, maybe an, maybe you would call this a new timeline in your life. I guess, how was that transition for you? So I played... A couple overalls back in the day when we're traveling just happened to be somewhere where there happened to be an overall event. And, you know, I don't know anything but golf, but you can kind of get by. You know, you if you don't golf, you can play distance and you can, you know. So I, I had some experience but didn't know the world very well. In, gosh, I don't know, maybe I think it's 2013, there happened to be a DDC tournament in Phoenix, Arizona. Mm-hmm. My dad lived in Phoenix at the time. And well, you know, any reason to go see my dad is a great, mm-hmm. great reason. So I went and played in that event and I met Rick LeBeau at that event and he and John Kirkland both sort of took me aside and said, you know, you, you elbow, elbow, you need to get into the overall, uh-huh. you need to play the overall, you need to play the overall. And I was traveling a lot for my job at that point and it just coincidentally I happened to be working at the TV station here in San Diego um, around that same time frame. So Rick suggested that we get together and he can start coaching me in some of the other events, specific, cool. specifically DDC, because it is not easy <laughs> to play I DDC. I noticed that today. And, that, and for anyone <laughs> for who's new to, to the world of Frisbee or disc golf, DDC is double disc court. It's a two-on-two game. Please look it up. It's really fun. And if you have eight cones, you could probably get a very basic form of the game going. And it's, like she said, very challenging. But once you get the hang of it, it is now my favorite discipline besides disc golf, obviously. Most people who have played at a top level say that it's the most fun they've ever had with a Frisbee. It is. Yeah. So just to let you all know, getting into this, you don't see a lot of it these days, but it is Awesome. So yes. can continue. So so I start training with Rick and and this coincides with um, my current relationship breaking up and I end up moving to Northern California. And so I'm still training here. And 2014 was the first overall that I go to that I'm prepared. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know I at least I'm familiar with all of the events. I've mm-hmm. got a little bit of skill in in most of them. 
and it happened to be uh, WIFDIF World Overall Championship in Richmond, Virginia. So there's seven events in an overall. Mm -hmm. All of them are Frisbee related. So there's disc golf, accuracy, distance, double disc court, discathon, freestyle. Is MTA one of them? MTA. It's actually, it's both MTA and TRC. TRC. So it's self-caught flight combining MTA and TRC. All of the events other than freestyle have already been contested and mathematically I've already won. And so I feel like, yeah, this time I... You know, I could delay a disc, but that's about all I could do. Mm-hmm. So I, I I feel like I have to play because, mm-hmm. you know, again, I don't deserve to win the overall if I don't play all the events. Exactly. So I go out there and I basically just play catch with mm-hmm. my partner and win the overall. And then... Your very first one? Yes. Well, oh, my, my first big my one. Gosh. I mean, you know, like I played a couple yeah. back in the day. But yes, now my... First big one. This is the first the first one that I've gone into knowing knowing what I'm getting into. Okay. And so after that, I start thinking that um, I want to train a little bit more on freestyle because it's kind of embarrassing to get to the end and then not be able to play freestyle. Exactly. Which is so hard. The learning curve to even get into freestyle is crazy. And again, new players to, the, to disc golf or anyone in Frisbee who's listening to this, please please watch some freestyle. Follow Juliana on Instagram and she has plenty of videos of her practicing, but please go. I'm trying to like educate the people because it's, there are things that don't get brought up as much as they used to. Well, I, I'm a big, big believer in the fact that working on any disc discipline is going to help every other disc discipline because the more that you know about angles and trajectories and wind influence, um, the more that you can then uh, translate that into whatever it is you're trying to do. And uh, I, I think it's extremely helpful. Yeah. So I start working a little bit on freestyle in the next year. So there's really only one big freestyle event a year. Virginia States has been happening for like 45 years, but I think it has five events, not all seven. So the big event is either the U.S. Open or the World Overall Championships. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm my, my first one was a U.S. Open, not a World Overall, because the next one we go to Sweden for the World Overall Championships. Sweet. Yeah, so this is 2015, and we go over to Sweden to play. And the week before, we go spend some time in Oslo, and we're staying with uh, Sune Wenzel, who is an overall player. He's actually a big disc golfer in the area, too. And he has a bunch of freestyle followers on his Facebook, and he took some video of us jamming a little bit. And, you know, I I did, like, the one move that I could do at the time. Mm -hmm. And I look back at it now, and it's horribly elementary and, and, and just, it, it just looks horrible. But you know, at the time it was, it was big, a big deal for me to mm-hmm. be able to do that. And he posts it on his page and it gets a lot of attention from the freestyle world because they know him. Mm-hmm. They don't know me. Yeah. And a guy by the name of Randy Sylvie, who lives in Seattle and is a future hall of famer in freestyle. Cool. I mean, he's a legend in the game writes on that thread jokingly do you want to be my partner for the fpa world championships next year well i didn't necessarily know it was a joke and i'm, I'm still not quite sure if it was or if it's it hard to know when you don't really know the person yeah. that well you know yeah and and so first of all i have to ask around like who is this guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> is it okay to say yes to is he safe <laughs> like, yes yes he's a great guy and so i wrote back and i said well if you're serious yes and this is 13 months out from mm-hmm. this event and so I make a partnership to play with him in mixed pairs 
-hmm. for the Freestyle World Championships for 2015 that's going to be in Brooklyn, New York. And so I then, you know, get out, get out my piece of paper, make my goal. Uh-huh. And I promised myself that I would put in, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go crazy, but mm. I'm, I'm going to put in the time. So I, I put in, I promised myself 10 hours a week for the next 13 months mm-hmm. and really saw improvement. I don't exactly know what prompted me to do this, but I started pretty early in that process putting things online. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to, to show people that I can be bad at something. <laughs> you know, I kind of wanted to show people that, you know, look, I'm really pretty poor at this, mm-hmm. but I'm going to work at it and hopefully you'll see improvement. And I thought that I could also maybe show disc golfers that there's other things uh-huh. out there that you can enjoy with, you know, the same little piece of plastic that you're used to throwing. Mm-hmm. And I just fell in love again. You know, I, I, I like the climb. I like the climb up the hill. I like seeing what I can get myself to be able to do. And freestyle seems limitless in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. That is very true. I mean, it limited by your own imagination. Yeah. And it's the way that I approach it is probably different than almost everybody else in the sport. Most people, you know, they, they get together in groups and they go and play catch and, and jam and, you know, it's all spontaneous and mine's more regimented like my field work. Mm-hmm. And part of that was because that's my comfort zone. Part of that was because I, I can control things. It was, it was both good and it was bad. So it was, it was bad in that I didn't learn how to handle wind mm. with a I freestyle see. disc okay. because I'm in my, my room but it was awesome because I, I had misconceptions. Like I thought that I had to be center delaying everything. And that means like the disc is on my fingers in the, in the middle of the disc. Mm-hmm. I'm not in the rim. And I thought that everything had to be, you know, clean and center. Nope. And so I became exceptionally good at the center delay, which means that I can do um, holds like behind the back hold or, you know, it's called a bad attitude hold, things that are harder for other people to do because they have not, they didn't grow up with in the sport thinking that, you know, I have to keep it in the center. They would let it go to the rim. And then, so you mastered that one thing because I you did. thought you had to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of an unusual growth pattern for a player, but it, it has worked for me. So now we're, you know, well, actually four years, I, I have, I never stopped playing in the freestyle. I never stopped with the, you know, that's what I, when I say that I'm going to go do drills now, that's what I mean. I'm going to go do yeah. my freestyle drills. And, um, I've gotten to play, well, similarly, it's more men than women. Mm-hmm. And so a woman in the sport can play with top men pretty easily because there are divisions of mixed pairs or open pairs mm-hmm. or women's pairs. And then there's a co-op division, which is three people. So if a man wants to play in mixed pairs mm-hmm. at a tournament, there's typically, you know, four times as many men that want to play than Ken. Mm-hmm. So, so the women can, can sort of take their pick. And, and I've gotten to play with absolutely amazing players. And, and the process of choreographing something and working with a partner and, and mapping it all out, I, I, it's just really gotten my attention it feels liberating huh it's 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 really fun 
Yeah, it's really, really, really fun to be able to share that with somebody and mm-hmm. to, to create something. And, and I'm so grateful that I've gotten into it. I witnessed that today. I witnessed a lot of joy. Obviously, we got randomly paired as partners today, hilariously enough. And then I, I witnessed tons of joy. And it's hard to have that on the, when, when your sport is so quantitative like disc golf is. You, know, you, can, you can win a tournament playing the most boring, uninspiring shots ever. And you win. And everyone's like, yeah, cool. You know, you did it. And you're like, hmm. I guess, yeah, you know, but if if you are truly into the beauty of a disc, highly recommend to anybody listening to this, check out some of the other disciplines in the world of disc sports, and again, I, I feel it from you, and it feels like there's a new life that you kind of got to breathe breathe into yourself, and I uh, I kind of felt the same way playing today. It was nice to to play something without the same expectations that I have when I go to the place where it's my job. I, uh, I guess closing words from you, I, I mean, any disc golfers out there that are listening to this, and, and I've said a lot to new ones, what would, you, what would you give? Closing words from someone, you know, who had, quote unquote, ran their course in, in, in the game of disc golf. What, what do you have to say about either disc golf, frisbee? I guess you can give whatever you'd like <laughs> to, to the people. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, well, I know that disc golf has the spotlight now of, of most of the disc disciplines, with maybe the exception of Ultimate. Ultimate still has a pretty big spotlight on it. I just I hope that people aren't so myopic that they can't see what else is out there because most likely if you like one discipline, you're going to like another one, and maybe you'll love another one, mm-hmm. you know, and you will most likely have some skill to begin with because mm-hmm. of all the time that you've put in in disc golf and um it offers whatever it is that you need and that's why i like the overall because some of the disciplines make you run some of the disciplines are super stationary and you just need to be precise some of the discipline disciplines are intellectual like ddc some of the disciplines are artistic like freestyle you know whatever it is that you're looking for it's it's there for you The Flight Diary is edited by Lindsay Rodans, music by Johnny Darge. The 2021 Disc Golf Pro Tour season is finally underway. I am in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada, getting ready for the first event of the year. I cannot wait to be back on the course competing. But with that said, we do have more guests lined up, and we will see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening.